We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome in to the Rotowire NFL podcast. Today is Thursday, November 19th. I am your host, John McKechnie, joined as always by Mario Puig. Mario, how are we doing? Hey, John. I'm all right. How are you doing? Doing well. I'm excited. We got a, another fun slate ahead of us. And, uh, you know, for once, and, and we'll, we'll get started here, we have a Thursday night game that, that might actually be good beyond the, the, um, the implications of just like entertainment value you know like the the broncos jets game was technically a fun game to watch but it wasn't particularly meaningful tonight we actually get treated to a cardinal seahawks game that you know is going to have major implications in the west and in the nfc and in fantasy so i'm really excited to dive in on that one we're going to get to the entire slate as we do every single episode here on the thursday rotowire nfl podcast but mario let's get things rolling here with this pivotal matchup taking place in Seattle. The Seahawks, two-and-a-half-point favorites in this one. That's moved down from three-and-a-half, where it opened earlier on in the week. So 
give us your initial read on, on how this one's going to shake out. Well, the Seattle defense had Shaq Griffin out for, I think, the second half or maybe a little bit more than that of the first time they played. The Cardinals, of course, won. Of, um, it, it was a strange outcome. There was a, there was a few things that like that long Hopkins catch uh, to Dunbar. That's that's a kind of play that's tough to pull off. So it was it was at once something that Kyler Murray and Hopkins did because they're awesome. But it's also a tough thing to make happen twice. And so if we were going into this game with more or less the same conditions as the last time where Shaq Griffin had to leave and the Cardinals barely uh, got a win out of it in overtime. And thanks largely to that Isaiah Simmons insane interception that struck me as like a pretty, you know, by a hair sort of outcome the first time. And maybe I would guess sure. in those conditions, maybe the Seahawks win six times out of 10, at least, uh, even though they lost that one time. This time around, the Seattle defense is quite a bit more beat up yet, uh, like as in both Griffin and Dunbar might be out. And if Dunbar's out, well, even if it's just Griffin, like that's that's really bad. The Seattle defense can only function, even theoretically, if they have those two good boundary corners playing press, like bump heavy coverage. And if you take out Shaq Griffin and replace him with Trey Flowers, that's enough to make them kind of fall apart like they did in the second half of that game again the first time around. And if you have no Dunbar out there, then... You know, it's like maybe it's one of those things that can't get much worse anyway, but uh, I bet it will. Like the guys that they're trying to replace him with just aren't very good. Um, one of them, Lyndon Stevens, isn't even the typical Pete Carroll like corner. Normally, Carroll would try to get by doing like a money. Guys like Flowers who are like 6'2", 6'3", with 33-inch arms so they can kind of basically press cover and hold and things like that. And Lyndon Stevens is this guy who's just kind of nondescript, can't, he has short arms, can't press. So I don't think Pete Carroll has any idea of how to deal with this. I, I think he's just kind of at a loss with it. And you heard him, you heard him talk about how we got to get more balanced on offense. We got to run the ball more. Um, I think that's almost like him coming up with the best idea he can think of as far as fixing this defense that if he's being realistic, he just can't fix it. And he should start thinking completely outside of those terms. So mm -hmm. if he tries to run the ball more and not put as much usage in the offense through Russell Wilson, that'll just make them worse more than likely. So this is at once a game Seattle can still win because Russell Wilson is so good. And because the receivers Metcalf Lockett are so good, but it's basically those three guys versus the Cardinals and the Cardinals aren't exactly like a world beater or anything, but you know, they're an improving team. Kyler Murray is clearly a star quarterback. Deandre Hopkins clearly works with him in a way with, with, a, with a level of chemistry that very few quarterbacks and receivers do. And it's not like Hopkins even needed that. He, he, this is a guy who was really productive with Tom Savage. So this is, this is a game where it just kind of looks like the, the, the Cardinals are pretty close to some sort of, higher form that like, you know, they're going to get there eventually and they might kind of be getting there right now. And if they are, I don't know how a Seahawks team that's um, trending downward in so many ways is, is in a good spot. Like I feel like their odds have to be worse than last time. Yeah. I think you, you have that framed perfectly where, you know, last time you could chalk up a little bit of things, just kind of bouncing the Cardinals way um, towards getting them that, that victory on that Sunday nighter. This time around, the Seahawks do do feel like they're in much worse shape here. And, you know, Pete Carroll wanting to run the, the ball a little bit more, that's all well and good, but they don't really have a ton in the way of backfield personnel right now that, that's at least um, healthy. So, I mean, uh, Chris Carson is questionable as, as of the time that we're recording this. Tyler Lockett on the injury report with the knee. 
Um, oh, so like, really? oh man, yes. when did this happen? <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it, it's a mess. And like you, like you detailed, oh, I mean, Lockett is on pace to play on Thursday, but I mean, it, it, it's at least possible that he's not going to be at a hundred percent. So that's not great. There's just a lot working against the Seahawks right now. And I think that those top two corners being sidelined, uh, might be that, that thing that really pushes this over the edge and makes this a strong Cardinals lean going into Thursday. Um, as far as like any fantasy outlooks beyond the the obvious guys, is there anyone that that's in a in a uh, improved or diminished spot here as far as their their fantasy outlook is concerned for for Thursday? Well, I assume one or both of Daryl Daniels and Max Williams will play, but it might just be Max Williams because Daryl Daniels didn't practice this week, and those two are both the blocking tight ends for the Cardinals. And I guess, you know, if, if one of them is out or if both of them is out, maybe the Cardinals just last second uh, call up I don't know, Jordan Thomas or Evan Bayless. Uh, or wait, no, Jordan Thomas is on the Patriots now. Evan, I don't know if Evan Bayless is a free agent still, but uh, they might have to call someone up. But if they don't, and if one of Daniels or Williams is out, then Dan Arnold probably is going to have to play something like 20 more snaps than he usually does. And I don't know. Maybe maybe they'll just ask him to block on all those new snaps if he gets them. But he's a guy who's listed at six six two twenty or something, and you can't. That, that's a wide receiver. That's not a tight end. So right. uh, if they want to call those run plays that they usually do with Daryl Daniels and Max Williams with Dan Arnold, that might go badly. So maybe they won't run quite those same plays. And I don't know. Maybe Dan, maybe Dan Arnold can uh, capitalize somehow, or, or maybe maybe it even results in a few extra snaps for someone like Isabella. I don't really know, but basically this looks like it should be a game where it's the Seahawks lack enough on defense that the Cardinals can just kind of do what they want, which is especially get Hopkins and Kirk and, and at least one of the running backs going. But uh, yeah, if, if there's a if there's a peculiar usage shift in the personnel, I guess it would be a tight end with, with the Cardinals. Interesting. No, that's a, that's a good call with, with both of those tight ends being being banged up. Um, that, that would certainly change the, the Cardinals ability to run. On the other on the other side, of, do you have any insights on this uh, Seahawks backfield? No, and it's it could be a pretty important question because if Pete Carroll has decided we got to run the ball more, then he's probably going to try to do that no matter how received it is. And it seems like Travis Homer's pretty well beat up, and DJ Dallas, of course, is oh yeah, Homer's doubtful, so he's probably out. Um, DJ Dallas has been playing a lot. I don't know if the results are. Uh, Sorry, Carlos Hyde is, is cleared from it. So, yeah, he's going to probably have to start because Chris Carson, I don't think, is going to play with that foot. Mm-hmm. So Carlos Hyde, he has to start. Yeah, and he's he would I would, I would imagine get like, um, you know, 15 carries in this game, maybe more. And the, the more part probably depends on whether the Seahawks can basically get a lead, because no matter if even even, you know, even last year and the years before, Pete Carroll and Schottenheimer would have to ditch their stupid little run heavy plan in the fourth quarter all the time anyways, because they needed Russell Wilson to catch back up for them. So that part is, you know, basically the two, 2019 is the worst case scenario here for, for the Seahawks offense. Um, but it is it is in play. And it's it, even that 2019 offense would be worse if it's uh, Carlos Hyde instead of Chris Carson getting those touches. Absolutely. So so uh, that's a that's a tough Tough break as far as the Seahawks backfield is concerned. I don't know if they'll be able to get it in gear and, and hopefully, you know, the the let Russ cook mantra can continue and, and they don't just try to like revert this to to like you said, that twenty nineteen form where they're just kind of running into a brick wall and, and letting the defense know that they're just 
going to run the ball and not really posing a lot of uh, threats other than that, uh, that sort of thing. So hopefully this game lives up to the billing. I, I'm a little bit worried after talking with you about the, the Seahawks' ability to, to hold up in this one, but we'll see. Let's get on over to the Falcons versus Saints matchup th- this weekend. The Saints, four-and-a-half-point favorites in this one, down from five-and-a-half earlier. It's Jameis time, so I, I want to start things off there. What do you think of Jameis this weekend? Did Sorry, Peyton said he's for sure going with Jameis. Did, is that, I mean, is that, is that not the... Oh, I don't know. It's, I thought I thought Peyton was going to kind of like not really tell us kind of thing. And I can't figure this out uh, f- f- from my end because I, I just don't see how you reconcile the two directions that these two guys go in. Because as much as as much as the Drew Brees, Taysom Hill thing kind of worked in its own way, there's such a big difference between Brees and Winston that at the very least, you're going to have to change some stuff. Uh, like this isn't going to be just like you plug in Winston and he behaves like Drew Brees. That that's not an option. Not realistically. Like they're like polar opposites really in terms of their play style. Yeah. So it's like on the one hand, Taysom Hill can't throw the ball. And I know a lot of people have their hopes up otherwise, but he couldn't throw the ball at BYU. So don't worry. He can't throw it in the NFL either. But the thing is he might be closer to the kind of throws that Brees makes. I underneath and never down or rarely downfield anyway. So maybe Taysom Hill full time is closer to the prior offense than Jameis Winston in any real capacity being involved. And in season, I don't know how you reimagine an offense like that. Like it's one thing to cut out a piece of the playbook and make it just a more, you know, we're only using the Taysom Hill plays now. Like that's, that's something that you could do. I don't think you can just say, Hey guys, uh, please attach your Jameis Winston component to the playbook and get all that in this week. Doesn't seem realistically realistic to me. So, um, but they could still choose to just go with Winston and have him be a bad version of the Drew Brees function in the offense. I don't know. It's all, it's all up to Sean Payton, and he's not telling us. But I, I feel like the smarter thing for him to do would kind of just be like go with Taysom Hill in a limited offense. Uh, but that also bad. That sounds bad to me because I wouldn't want Taysom Hill to be my quarterback in the first place. So, I don't know. I don't know where it's going, but. Um, guess it would be cool if they put in Jameis and he instantly went, you know, 2019 chucking the ball deep anti-Drew Brees. It's just I don't know how they could do that. I don't, I don't know logistically how it's even possible. Yeah, that, that's going to be a, a tough adjustment. Um, yeah, this isn't like handing the reins off to 2019 Teddy Bridgewater. You know, this is right. this is a lot. This is a lot different the because Winston. He's the uncaretaker. Yes. <laughs> Precisely. So. It's really tough to know which way this is going to go. And my apologies if, if I uh, sounded like I knew for sure that, that Winston was starting. Again, that, that is a situation that, that is up in the air. My sense, you know, as an armchair GM here is that I think over the course of, of an entire NFL football game, Jameis Winston gives you the better chance to win uh, than totally. Taysom Hill. So I, I assume that, that Peyton uh, agrees with that and will go that route. But you don't well, know for hey, sure. It, the, t- the Titans beat the Bills in that one game having no practice. Maybe Jameis's problem this entire career was that he had to practice too much and uh, reducing it to just kind of like a you know street ball playing kind of 500 style. Maybe maybe that with no practice is, is going to bring out the best in him is, is just, you know, raw instincts uh, will serve him better than what happens when he thinks too much or something like that. 
yes, that's a that's an excellent storyline to to bake in there. And then as far as the the um, the Saints skill position guys, how does this affect or the Breeze injury affect their like fantasy outputs in your mind? Well, it's it's one of those things where it kind of depends on the path they choose, because if they put Jameis out there and they try to call the Drew Brees playbook, it might not go well, but it still is better for the interests of Michael Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, Jared Cook, whoever it is, uh, probably Kamara as far as his pass, pass catching. They all would prefer to see Winston just because he's capable of throwing an NFL pass, which I really don't know if Taysom Hill can. So, But if they if they go with Taysom Hill, it it's just kind of... I don't know, maybe one of those pass catchers can do something, but Taysom Hill is not throwing 35 passes. And if he throws more than like 25, maybe you can get around 15 receptions in the game, some, like as a team. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if there's really – maybe Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara have barely enough room, but they're going to be very touchdown dependent if they're going to get anywhere near their customary level of projection uh, – production, I should say. And um, in that case, I guess it's like I feel okay about Kamara because he'll be able to run and uh, Taysom Hill being unable to throw to receivers probably – bodes fine for Kamara like maybe it's not better but it, it's it's fine so he'll, he'll be a good he'll be good and Taysom Hill's running can make Kamara's running a little bit easier at least if the defense is respecting the hill part of the, of the fakes so Kamara's fine but yeah I don't know if the receivers have much theoretical room Taysom Hill is the quarterback because so much of the usage is going to go to the ground he will run a lot no, absolutely, and and uh, again, like the the passing game isn't going to be nearly as high volume as it as it normally would be with with Breeze back there. So yeah, I think if it is the Hill show the entire time, then pushing for even twenty five uh, dropbacks might might be asking a lot. And you imagine that a lot of those targets will go to Kamara because he presents the easiest one, the one that's been working the most consistently throughout the season. You know that probably leaves open like seven, maybe eight targets for Michael Thomas. And, you know, he, we're probably not going to get the same efficiency out of him as we're, we're used to seeing from like 2019, 2018 form. So right. yeah, his projection is, is lower. So, so, but, I mean, your season's probably sunk if you had Michael Thomas it with your first pick, but uh, yeah. it's almost, it's almost like cruel having to play out the string with, with him because he's not injured anymore, but like everything else around him has gone to crap basically what now that he's finally healthy. Yeah, I don't know what to do with it. Like you said, teams that picked him first probably just are in a rough enough spot that it doesn't matter what he does at this point. But if you're actually dependent on him and still alive somehow, I I feel like, yeah, you're just in for more torment, uh, uh, potentially anyway. Yeah, so n- not a great setup as far as that is concerned. On the Falcons side of this one, uh, what do we need to know with, with them attacking the Saints defense? Um, I'm kind of worried about Calvin Ridley. I don't know what foot injuries are not good and it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of him being available or if he's available, how well he can play. And then I also start to wonder, does, does this sort of, um, empty calorie offense that the Falcons occasionally put up this, this kind of just big Matt Ryan passing volume, does that even happen if, if there's no Ridley, like do, does Julio Jones start to get, diminished per target returns because of the defense just flooding his area of the field so much like Russell Gage isn't hurting anyone uh, Hayden Hurst he's okay but if you need him to be your second best pass catcher your passing game probably isn't very good so I, I do worry about Julio losing a little bit but from the volume projection standpoint 
you know, never really would get better for Julio than in days where Calvin Ridley doesn't play or isn't himself because Calvin Ridley's a double digit target kind of receiver. So you, you can't really expect Julio to go like 250 yards on 20 targets, but at least the 20 target part is more likely than, than in a, you know, another game. So he should be fine. I, d- I don't know if, um, or sorry, I'm just, I'm, I'm realizing now I'm getting a stale, uh, report here for, for is Calvin Ridley fine? Sorry, I have to keep asking this um, stupid stuff. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um, Ridley is questionable. He was a limited per, uh, participant in Wednesday's practice. That's what he oh, was okay. Well, he's, so he's, That bodes reasonably well. Yeah, he should be able to play then. And um, as long as he's out there, then even though I hate the dirt cutter offense and I don't really believe in the Falcons offense, having Ridley on one side and Julio on the other and Matt Ryan at quarterback, that's, that's legitimately tough to stop. So uh, that part of them is fine, but I, I don't know if uh, – don't know if I would expect them to be good necessarily. I don't know. Like the, the, there should be those numbers, but I just don't know how competitive they'll be. I can see uh, Julio and, and Ridley both going for a hundred or something, and the Falcons not really getting many touchdowns in the game. All the same, so we'll see. This, the Saints defense has been kind of goofy all year, but I feel like it's been pretty common in the past few years that they get better over the course of the season and. Even a guy like Marshawn Lattimore, who's playing terribly this year, it's like how how can that really keep happening forever? It's like even if he had ten bad games in a row, we're still it's still true to say that most of his career has been very good, and I, I feel like a talent like him will eventually pop back up. But um, that's not something that's likely to happen against these receivers. So um, I don't know. I guess I guess it should be kind of more or less to uh, your typical expectations for Julio and Ridley and. Gurley, it's kind of like, you know, you, you got to go with him, I guess, in most leagues just because of how much he paid to get him. But I wouldn't get my hopes or I, I would prepare for maybe a disappointment here, because um, if the Saints go with especially Taysom Hill, that's a good way for, for Atlanta to trend downward in the play count and for the for both teams' play count to trend downward just because running the ball runs the clock faster than throwing the ball. And you can imagine Sean Payton going like a little lower tempo to kind of preserve a lead and ch- just choke the win out that much quicker uh, instead of playing with fire that is, you know, Taysom Hill at his turnover potential. So um, I'm not I'm not getting my hopes up for like a higher range outcome with these guys. Like I don't think I'll go with this game in DFS, for instance. Okay, yeah, th- this is by Falcon Saint standards like a relatively low projected uh, total. I mean, it's it's just sitting at 50. Hasn't gotten higher than 52 at any point this week, and is trending downwards. In fact, so yeah, I think that th- there's a very real possibility that. Um, if if the Saints go that ball control route, then that's going to really, really limit the, the play count on both sides. Um, and therefore, you know, what what would normally be a game that you kind of like start your your DFS builds with in, in normal times is, is one to maybe um, stay away from. We, we have Todd Gurley um, projected like at, at like our number 19 running back for this week. He's running back 20 on on DraftKings. So. Um, yeah, kind of low end RB two type of projection for him, but it, it could be worse if the carries get get cut into a little bit. And I am a little bit interested now that um, the the Saints have uh, Quan Alexander. They have a really like nice um, run stopping ability too on on top of things things that they've added this season. So may, maybe that makes it even even tougher for Gurley on Sunday. Yeah, and there is a way for Gurley to have a good game, but it needs, I think, the scenario of the Saints' offense collapsing to the point that the Saints' defense does too. 
It's like even even if the Saints offense struggles, it's like the Quan Alexander addition cannot hurt. Uh, so Demario Davis is already already really good. They got a bunch of guys who are capable of playing really well, and and you know with with that being the case, we have to keep in mind like they, they might have all of a sudden just kind of get better over the course of the year too. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm not optimistic for Gurley, especially since it's in New Orleans rather than Atlanta. It's like stupid uh, quarterback situation or not. I don't really want to play the Saints there. So especially when it's a team as dysfunctional, as, as capable of just failing for no reason as the Falcons are. Yeah, they, they are top notch at that. Um, let's move on to another game. We got the Panthers going up against the Lions. A lot of unknowns in this one. And, that, and that's why the things like the over-unders and the money lines aren't out right now at, at several different sports books. You got Stafford with the banged up thumb. Uh, Galladay and Hawkinson both on the injury report this week. They're both questionable as of the time of this recording. McCaffrey is going to be out on the Carolina side of things. Teddy Bridgewater dealing with that MCL injury. We don't know if he's going to be able to go or if he does play, um, how effective he will be. So, and he's been he's been moving around a decent bit this year, running the ball a little bit. So, um, if that gets taken out, then that that certainly hurts the the Panthers' offense as well. So, a lot of question marks in this game more than anything else. Yeah, this is pretty gross. I guess we can kind of maybe start to get and keep our hopes up for DeAndre Swift because uh, particularly with the shorthandedness of of the Detroit offense, it's going to be difficult for Patricia to justify any shenanigans of, you know, keeping the ball away from Swift for too long anymore. And uh, it's just obvious. It's like he's there. I, I think Kenny Galladay is a really good player at receiver, but I expect Swift to be a better running back than Galladay as a receiver. So particularly with these with these other parts of the offense struggling, beat up, they got to just give him the stupid ball already. And as much as I think the Panthers have some decent players on defense at a few spots, and I think Phil Snow is a pretty good defensive coordinator, I think if you give volume to Swift, he will eventually make a big play against most defenses and certainly I, I don't think that I don't think the Panthers are talented exactly on defense. I think they're kind of like overachieving and mm-hmm. uh, overachievement tends to lose against top level talent uh, with enough exposure. So I feel good about Swift's chances uh, regardless of what happens at quarterback. But yeah, it would be better for him if, you know, Stafford is out there and, and uh, Galladay's out there at like 85 and Hawkinson's out there at 85. Uh, that would be a good setup for Swift. But on the Panther side, I don't know what you know. Mike Davis, sure, and, and those receivers, if you want to. But I, I wouldn't get my hopes up. Philip uh, PJ Walker looks pretty terrible so far, and I don't know what we can expect <laughs> from Bridgewater realistically. Well, we'll always have that XFL run, right? Or the, was it the AAF or XFL for for Walker? I didn't actually get in on the AAF thing or the XFL, but I do remember, and I sincerely appreciate Temple PJ Walker. Him and him and Robbie Anderson there like six years ago were awesome. Yes, that that is a fact, and that, that they can never take that away from us. But as far as this coming NFL Sunday, uh, if Walker's out there, then um, best of luck. Maybe Anderson, but yeah, everybody else is kind of looking a little risky. Yes, very risky. But uh, circling it back before we move on to this one uh, or move on to the next game, I know this is a, a rather quick breakdown of this game, but again, so many unknowns at the time of the recording. Not not a whole lot of actual stuff we can give you at this stage, but. I'm glad that that, you know, you, you gave the stamp of approval as far as like the swift breakout happening. You know, it, it it felt like in that Jacksonville game, like, OK, here we go. And then we had frustrating usage patterns as next following weeks. But now we're, we're really at the stage coming off another big game from Swift to where 
he has to be the engine of that run game. And, and he's so uh, effective as a pass catcher out of the backfield, too. I don't know how you can really justify other than just like to give Swift a breather, giving any snaps away to, to carry on Johnson or Adrian Peterson the rest of the way. Yeah, uh, knock on wood anyway, because, I, I mean, it's it's all so stupid. Like, Carrion Johnson, who I never particularly liked as a prospect, is still way better than Adrian Peterson. So the whole Peterson thing is just so tedious and silly. And, and Patricia will always be the kind of fool to f- make us deal with things like this. I just think with the conditions as they are, it'll be especially tough to do that. Like, I think he would like to be the, the, this ridiculous, you know, tinkering fool who, who thinks he's doing three dimensional chess by uh, putting out his slowest and crappiest running back in like the highest <laughs> stake situations. I don't know on what reasoning he's doing it. Always want to do that. That's just who he is. It's just, I don't know if he, even someone like him feels like it's an option in a situation like this one. Yeah, so it's got to be it's got to be swift season. Uh, there's really no other way around it at this stage. Let's get on over to Eagles Browns. Kind of an interesting matchup. Kind of like a, a the two teams kind of paralleling each other um, within their respective conferences. But the Eagles slightly better chance at, at the the playoff just because of how how much oh uh, in, sh- in shambles the East is right now. We got the Browns checking in as three point favorites in this one. How do these two teams match up against each other? I don't know. I hate the Eagles so much, and it's such a bummer (laughs) because it's like Frank Reich and Doug Peterson were these two guys four years ago. I don't even remember when they won that that stupid Uh, Super Bowl. Yeah, it's like these were guys who as recently as three years ago were kind of – never never confused for like a Belichick or even a Shanahan or McVay type. I think we knew they weren't that good, but I think they seemed like good coaches. You know, like we know a bad coach, we, uh, at least after enough time seeing them. We, we know when a coach is just kind of bad. And I thought Doug Peterson and Frank Reich were, were this sort of in-between where they're pretty good. These guys who are good enough to win a Super Bowl and they, they won't make a dynasty maybe like Belichick or whoever else that's capable of that. But they'd be something closer to good than bad. And whatever it was that made them seem that way is gone now. There's there's not anything to Doug Peterson as a coach. He's just kind of flailing these different ways. And, and I, you know, Frank Reich, uh, he's he's kind of doing a different version of d- dumb things in Indianapolis right now. But they both just like they've been passed by already by the league. Like time already uh, has has like moved past them, and they either can't catch up or they're going to need a lot more time to figure out things. The Eagles are trending downward, though. There, there's not any growth here. There's, there's nothing to build upon. There's, there's nothing. There's, there's no insight that Doug Peterson is offering uh, to, to, to find their way through this uh, sort of dark stretch here. He'll just and go I, for two. He'll go for two, though. He'll go for two, and uh, he'll, you know, that's the most going forward on fourth down and going for two is all you can really ask for a coach. Is as long as they do that, their, their results are good. Um, to me, but like there, it, it's just, it's just like, I don't think Carson Wentz is a very good quarterback or whatever. I think he's fine, but those results last week, you know, it's like, it's always just something's going wrong. It's like, if Carson Wentz isn't missing the open guy, then he's that guy, into a sack. Well, he's running into a sack or the guy drops it like Miles Sanders last week. And, um, it, they're adding guys like Jalen Rager to the offense and they're adding, um, you, you know, Miles Sanders to the offense and they get worse. Like who who's running this team? How do you do that? It doesn't it, it it's it's a complete lack of composure. Whereas at least when they were you know making the the 
Super Bowl and, and winning that Super Bowl against the Patriots, the, the Eagles were kind of like composed and seemed dignified or something. They're starting to look like they don't practice anymore this year. And I just can't imagine like, – I can't even theorize as to how they how they look so goofy as they have. But um, I'm not – I'm not optimistic about it. Going to Cleveland doesn't make me any more optimistic for them. I don't know if Carson Wentz can deal with Miles Garrett, Larry Joby, and Sheldon Richardson right now. Those, those that, or sorry, that Cleveland defensive line can really make things go wrong if that stupid Giants defense can hit Carson Wentz twelve times or whatever it was last week. It's like they don't even try to rush the rush the passer. They say we're de- our defense is going to be three guys who are three hundred and fifty pounds and can't move. That's gonna be our that's gonna be our building block right here. And the Eagles offensive line just like matadored them. And it was it was just ridiculous. So Miles Garrett and Sheldon Richardson, those guys are both like blue chip talents. It can go pretty wrong in that regard. I don't know how much hope to have for Miles Sanders. Like I think he's good in fantasy and he's more or less good in real life, but he he's pretty limited as a running back, actually. Like he has these sort of uh, just weak spots in his game that become pretty ugly from time to time and he'll never be confused for the kind of pure running talent who can kind of like create space and traffic. It's like he needs space and he can run through space when he has it, but you put a little stress on him and he kind of just turns into the baseline of the offense, which in the Eagles case is trash right now. So I feel a lot more confident in the Brown side because they at least have an offensive line and they have two running backs who can run the ball. And I, I know the Eagles are tough against the run a lot of the time, but their linebacker play has been pretty bad this year. And their defensive line is good, deep, whatever. But if you have a really good run-blocking offensive line, then that kind of neutralizes that. And then if it's your linebackers and your t- your tacklers generally against Chubb and Hunt, it's like, well, I'll take that team then. No, exactly. And I think the, the Browns' offensive line got a little bit healthier this past week. I think Miles Teller was – or uh, Wyatt Teller, not Miles yeah. Teller, not uh, – you know the the drumming movie. That guy is is also playing offensive line for the for the Browns now. But no, he he's back in the fold. That that definitely helps that that run game that was already very effective. So uh, yeah, I think that this all points to the Browns being able to play that their 2020 brand of football. Um, and and to your to your larger point on the Eagles, it, it's really gone so sideways. And I think if you're an Eagles fan, you're almost more disturbed after last week than you have been at any other point in the season because yeah. at least you could you could point to the injuries previously. But now, like, you, you, I mean, you said it perfectly. Like, you get Miles Sanders and Jalen Rager back, and you get worse. Like, ha- that is an alarming, alarming instance. Also, and maybe it was just one game, but I, I wouldn't feel confident in saying that. They've, in hindsight, not really known what they've been doing for a while because we should have – I know I made this mistake. When they took Jalen Hurts, I was like, well, you know – they're the Eagles. They do a pretty good job of managing things. I'm sure they've got some good ideas, some plan for this. And it turned out, no, they made that pick because they're just confused. They don't know what to do. They, they're they fundamentally uh, just detached fr- from from the nature of, of, you know, the challenges that are ahead of them. And they're they're distracted by these other things that don't matter. And they're just, you know, sinking the whole time that, that they're that they're you know, beat, that they're wasting their time on all these things. So uh, the Jalen Hurts plays are just ridiculous. The theory of it makes no sense. It's interesting to have an, an added threat and a given look when you can fold that threat into a prior look. If you have to take Carson Wentz off the field to put Jalen Hurts at quarterback, no one's going like, oh, what are they going to do now? They could do anything. No, they know that you're going to do some stupid run play because that's the only reason you put him on the field is because he runs better than Carson Wentz. So it's just a dumb thing. It doesn't. It's it's a 
it's like the Taysom Hill thing, but even worse applied. It's I mean, just stuff, if, it's stuff you do it, when you don't know what you're doing. Very similar to like Lamar Jackson rookie year. Oh yeah, Marty <laughs> Morningwig ideas over here. <laughs> That's not great. And then uh, one last um, optical thing uh, when it comes to the Eagles. If you've watched them at all this month, do you get like tripped up watching Carson Wentz because he's wearing like the camo sleeve and it kind of looks like he's got a crazy arm sleeve of tattoos? Or is that just me? Uh, I, I've definitely seen those, and I think it's a weird, you know, fashion choice or whatever. But I'm more so just struck by kind of the eeriness of it all. It's it's just a weird thing to watch all these people who um, are basically the same people as a couple of years ago who looked really good and. Uh, nothing really changed. It's like they've got a case of just terminal team yips. Like they're just doing bad things all the time. And you, you can kind of just like feel the failure in the air when you're watching them. And and when you when that's something that comes across to you when you're watching the Giants play, like, oh, wow, this team that's this team across the, the aisle from Daniel Jones seems kind of, you know, disheveled and irresponsible today. Like that's that's just a bad place to be. Like you cannot be as a team more dysfunctional than Daniel Jones ever. And especially if you're supposed to be like a division leader or whatever. No, absolutely. Absolutely not. So th- this is just more tough stuff from the Eagles. I hate the um, Eagles here. I'll t- I like the Browns to, yeah, just kind of like ruin their spirit actually. Okay. Um, I do want, want to know because it, it feels like forever ago that that crazy Cincinnati game happened for, for Cleveland with, with, you know, all the touchdowns, Odell Beckham going out in that game the last two weeks that, uh, and they've had a buy sandwiched in. So that, that kind of makes it feel longer, um, than it has been. It's only been two games of sample really since then, but going up against Vegas and Houston, both in, in very windy conditions, we've seen, we saw the, the takes following the Beckham injury, saying, you know, like Richard Higgins or, or D, you know, I was saying like DPJ might be worth a look, that sort of thing. But we got another outdoor game here in Philly. Then they got a couple, you know, non-weather games uh, coming up after that at Jacksonville and at Tennessee. But are there any sort of like fancy takeaways for the receivers beyond Jarvis Landry at this point? Or should we just expect th- this to be like a, a non-fantasy offense as far as that goes? And it's only the run game. Well, I still think Rashard Higgins is good, and I think as long as there isn't bad wind, then even in this sort of you know bad passing offense, there should be room for him and PPR to function. I don't think Stefanski has any sort of insight as to how to use Austin Hooper, so I think Hooper's still good, and I think if if Stefanski makes the choice to use him, then it's pretty simple. He'll he'll go. But I think Stefanski was either like not a part of that signing or just is too confused about talent evaluation to know what he's, he's doing with him. And I therefore wouldn't have much hope for the rest of the year in that case. So uh, I think, I think it's like in this particular game against the Eagles, we might see slay shadow Richard Higgins just because as much as I would like to see Higgins in the slot, Landry's going to play the slot until they terminate that contract. Uh, So he's going to be in the slot. Slay usually doesn't go there. So I think you can feel pretty good about Jarvis Landry in this game. And if you have to use Richard Higgins, I wouldn't exactly over it because he's pretty good. And if, you know, if Baker Mayfield throws 35 passes, I would guess, uh, I would guess eight or nine or 10 targets is in play for Higgins. So if you're talking that kind of usage, then you don't worry about efficiency anymore, really. Sure. Uh, that's a good point. When it comes to volume, we'll, we'll have to see if the Browns go that approach. 
that obviously hasn't been viable the last couple of weeks because of the weather in Cleveland. We'll see uh, what's going on there come Sunday. That, that should impact the outlook as far as those pass catchers are concerned in Cleveland. Let's get on over to Patriots going up against the Texans. Patriots coming off the, the strong wind win on Sunday night against Baltimore. The Texans, a very just kind of sleepy loss to Cleveland, I thought. Um, last week, it, it didn't feel like there there was a whole lot working on, on either side for the Texans in this one. So it's not shocking to me that even though this isn't a good Patriots team, that they're still favored on the road. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think Deshaun Watson can beat this defense, and I think even kind of the bad Bill O'Brien playbook might be able to do okay against this this sort of defense because the ways that they always failed. Uh, especially with you know relative to the standards of guys like Watson and those receivers, at, especially at the time with Hopkins, the, to me it looked like the reason it would fail is because defenses more or less knew the route combos that they were using. So you're not actually going to cover a guy if you don't have to. You'll just wait where you know he's going to go and and not you know trouble yourself with mirroring him. Just just wait a second over here because we know he goes over here when the plays look like before the snap. And so I thought that was part of the problem. But the Patriots use a man coverage or at least they did with when you know Gilmore was healthy I don't know if they're kind of shifting away from that to account for for the durability troubles at corner but if you're playing if you're playing like press man coverage against Deshaun Watson then I don't think even Bill O'Brien's playbook can hurt him because you're, you're specifically reducing it to that corner versus that receiver and if if that's the task or, or sorry if that's the scenario then it's like Brandon Cooks will beat most corners Will Fuller will beat most corners maybe Neither of them can beat J.C. Jackson, but J.C. Jackson is only one corner. And there should be someone getting open. And Deshaun Watson, I think his kind of downfield attack instincts really suit a matchup against aggressive press man coverage. So if the Patriots play it that way, I think Watson can be pretty good here. And, uh, that's you know, I don't want to take that for granted because maybe Bill Belichick thinks these things too. And is like, oh, well, we'll just use more zones against him. It's all possible. But I do like this matchup a lot more for Watson than uh, playing in wins like last week's. Okay. Now, that, yeah, that last week was going to be tough on both sides as far as, as moving the ball through the air. Um, like you said, J.C. Jackson is doing extremely well right now, but just one guy. Maybe Stephon Gilmore gets back in the mix and, and makes things a little bit tougher on these Texans receivers. But I think you had it, it drawn up pretty well as far as how, how the Texans can beat the, the Patriots when they have the ball. We'll just see if they're able to actually um, get that done. As far as the, the Patriots are, are concerned, I thought Damian Harris looked awesome on, on Sunday night. Yeah. So h- how does he profile against this Texans run, D? Well, he's he's running pretty well. And unlike a case like a Benny Snell or an Alexander Madison or whatever, I actually – can get pretty high on Damian Harris as a guy who's kind of, you know, this, this sort of a pure, well, not that Madison is a pure runner, but just that kind of like non blue chip high motor kind of power sort of runner. These, these guys who fall outside the first round, but they, they kind of just impress you with their, the motor that they run with. I like Harris a lot more than the other two in this category, because we've already seen him produce at a high level at Alabama and including ahead of Josh Jacobs, producing at a high level at Alabama. So for me, this is something uh, Harris running like he has in the past month is something that I kind of expected from him based on what he did in college and his workout numbers, which by the way, are better than uh, Madison and Snell too. Like Harris is a pretty good athlete. He's not great, 
but he's he's basically like a Josh Jacobs at worst kind of athlete, you know. Like it's, it's he's not bad. That works. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he's he's running with a really hot motor right now. I don't know how much he can keep running at like 110, percent but if they keep his work kind of narrowly defined, you know, like if he's not really doing this pass catching stuff, uh, it's at once kind of a doubt. It's kind of a bummer for fantasy purposes because we want him to get targets. But it's like maybe he's maybe part of why he's doing so well is because he just does go into the game, you know, basically blindfolded and just like runs with this this maximum intensity. And it's it's playing really well. It seems to be, you know, complementing the sequences of the other plays that they call in that offense. So I think he's shown that he's better than Sony Michelle. And I think not only can you kind of be optimistic about Harris in a any game where Michelle is out, uh, you know, including this one, but you can kind of I think. I think you can kind of assume that Sony Michelle is just about over in this offense. I don't know why. I don't. I don't know if they could bring him back. You know, it's like even if they wanted to get him involved, like what are you going to do? Like deactivate James White, Rex Burkhead? It's like they both mm-hmm. play bigger roles in this offense than Sony Michelle would off the bench. So I, I think this one's kind of a wrap. It's just Harris who's the runner there now, and he gets another opportunity to to prove that, in my opinion, this week. Assuming yeah, totally. the ankle is good to go, and and like you said, all those details with how he's running right now. Just a little bit of um, added lighter fuel here. Texans allowing 5.2 yards per carry to opposing uh, offenses. So that that's worst in the league. That's worst in the Bengals. That ain't good. So it, it, going up against an offense that I think is going to try to run the ball more than most other teams, this just sets up as a very good spot for Harris and, and a tough one for the Texans. That, that you know The worst part of their defense uh, is going to be the one that is exploited the most uh, by this Patriots attack. Um, anything else to add on here before we move on? Uh, I think you could feel good about Cam Newton too. Uh, maybe not so much as a pass ca- as a passer, but if Harris is helping them move the chains, then eventually, you know, the defense has to lean forward. And if if Cam's getting a little help, then I think Cam uh, can do well in most cases. And this this defense is more friendly than most. Yeah, it it absolutely is. Let's get on over Titans Ravens. Titans six point underdogs on the road here, going up against Baltimore. Baltimore kind of in shambles offensively right now. And, uh, you know, I think that you also run into a situation where they've been without Ronnie Stanley the last couple of weeks. That's That's been known. Uh, they've been without Marshall Yanda all season. Of course, he retired this past offseason. Um, I think that the the loss of Nick Boyle is going to be like uh, like maybe the final nail in the coffin of, of whatever this Ravens offense is trying to be. Because, I mean, I would have the usage or, or like the value on basically any other team that he does with the Ravens, but he basically functions as like a six offensive lineman who can also catch the ball um, for them. So with him being out um, and and no Hayden Hurst, it just means that there's one real NFL tight end and it's Mark Andrews. Obviously Mark Andrews is great in in the pass catching role. He's okay as a blocker, but he's not, that's not his primary function. You need multiple tight ends that can block to make this offense really go. I think we can we can kind of deduce that if you compare it to last year. So I think this Ravens offense is in deep trouble, and it's going to stay that way all year. Yeah, I mean, relative to last year, there's just nothing they can do to, to get to that kind of point. Like, there's no there's no candidates. There's, there's no one on the bench to turn to, and they have no – means you know trade or signing or whatever to to replace the personnel that they lost especially a guy like stanley at a time like they did i can't believe they haven't added a tight end yet just like any free agents because they don't I think they got call, luke wilson 
Oh, Luke Wilson, the, the Seattle guy. Okay. Um, well, that's interesting. I think, uh, yeah, they're going to have to call him up and he's going to have to play like 30 snaps right away because Mark Andrews just doesn't block. And Boyle had been running more routes this year than previous years. So that, that's kind of interesting to me too. As much as as much as much we're focusing on like Yanda and recently Stanley and, and a little bit before that, we were kind of looking at like Willie Sneed and, and Boykin as maybe not doing their fair share kind of. Uh, there's been a change in how they use the tight ends generally this year. Like, I guess Andrews has been more or less the same as he was previously, but he's been doing more snaps than last year. And Boyle has been playing about the same snaps, but he's been blocking less. He's been running a lot more routes than he used to. So I don't know what to make of that, really. I, I generally hate the idea of blocking tight ends, but it is interesting to me that regardless of all these other things that have changed, that one changed on their own choice. like, And it wasn't just because they got rid of Hurst. Like, they could have kept Boyle blocking as much as last year, and they didn't. So I don't know what that might indicate about, about their broader strategy. Uh, in any case, as much as they can't really fix it, especially in terms of like meeting the expectations that we had for them this offseason, this is one setting where I think it's going to be just fine. And in fact, if, if Lamar Jackson has fewer than 30 fantasy points in this game, I think I'll be shocked because – I know he had a problem against the Titans in the playoffs. I know they totally, you know, just just punched the Ravens in the face and they never recovered uh, from early in that game. But the Tennessee defense sucks this year. It's absolutely trash. And if it's if it's a trash defense, then I'm not worried about Lamar Jackson and the Ravens offense against a trash defense. Like this is this is an offense that I specifically hoped to be one of the best in the NFL. So the disappointment comes when they have games like last week or, or you know whatever a couple of weeks ago. Um, but when they're going against a team like the Titans defense, I, I don't get so anxious because it's I don't need them to reach the same heights that I hoped for previously. They the, the bar is much lower now and. This Tennessee defense is vulnerable to a guy like Marquise Brown, even though he's been struggling. Like the the one dimension that they've been kind of uh, using up too fast with Marquise Brown, like these, you know, they they go deep and they give him curls. That's basically all that they've done. And now defenses have flooded to his side. I don't know if this defense can stop even this kind of poor application of Marquise Brown or uh, Mark Andrews. I guess it's a little easier for Jayon Brown or Kevin Byard to cover Andrews, but I I just don't know if it's enough. And in, at corner, they don't have anybody. Well, Adoree Jackson might be back, I guess I should say. But even if Adoree Jackson is back and even if Adoree Jackson covers Marquise Brown, well, I think Miles Boykin can get open on the other corner. And I especially think Devin DuVernay can. And I also think this these uh, running backs can run on the Tennessee offense. So I think Lamar has a big game here. And uh, I don't know what to expect of the Tennessee side other than, you know, they'll try to run it with Henry. They'll probably have some success. I think you can feel okay about AJ Brown in this game. Uh, he maybe he gets shadowed by Humphrey, maybe not. Uh, but I just I, I like the idea of of uh, AJ Brown coming off of a bad game, especially when we call it a bad game. I think this is there was interference on that pass that he dropped that everyone freaked out about that could have been a touchdown. It's like he got interfered with, and that should have been a call. Um, so if, if we're one pass interference that goes uncalled away from AJ Brown, having another 70 yards and a touchdown, then, um, I, I, I kind of like, you know, obviously you're playing him in season long. It's just, I mean to say, if there is a Lamar Jackson kind of breakout game here, then I wouldn't mind having a share of AJ Brown in a tournament lineup or two. And one more tournament dart to throw out there. Maybe this will be music to your ears. Maybe I think it will. Uh, Devin DuVernay has been playing more and more every single week. I think yeah. he had his his season high as far as uh, snap share was concerned this past week um, against the Patriots. Caught everything thrown his way. 
you know, that's that's not uncommon for him at this stage. So it, it, meanwhile, Miles Boykin, his his uh, snap share continues to go downward. So I think that um, I, I don't have his, his DFS price pulled up right in front of me. But DuVernay, interesting. If, if you're buying, uh, you know, the, the Lamar Jackson bounce back, then I think DuVernay is a big part of it, actually, come Sunday. Yeah, good call. He actually played 17 more snaps than Boykin. So I, I guess it's yep. finally happened. It's it's happening, brother. I, you know, I, I'm the I'm the Ravens like back backup beat writer here at RotoWire, so I pay attention <laughs> to these sort of things. It's so happening, I, isn't it? It it's freaking happening, brother. So that's exciting at the very least. If nothing else is very exciting about Hell the Ravens yeah. right now. Um, let's get on to. Before we get over to our next game, we got a message from our friends over at PropSwap. Smart sports bettors always know where to find the best odds before placing a bet, and that's why smart bettors use PropSwap. You can always find the best odds on PropSwap because you're buying directly from other bettors like yourself. See a ticket you like, but think the price is too high? Submit a bid for a price you think is fair, then buy it. PropSwap sellers are always willing to negotiate, and we all know bookies never will. And for a limited time, our listeners can get up to $500 in bonus cash. Just use the promo code ROTO500. That's promo code R-O-T-O. Five zero zero and PropSwap will match your first deposit up to $500. Become a smarter sports better today. Go to PropSwap.com or download the PropSwap app. We also got a message from our friends over at BetMGM. Sports bettors know that magic happens when you turn a hunch into action and apply the right amount of expertise. That's why BetMGM has teamed up with RotoWire to offer new BetMGM customers a free six-month RotoWire subscription when they place their first bet. Register on the BetMGM app or website, and once you make your first sports wager, you'll receive a season's length of RotoWire's unmatched sports insights. Find out why BetMGM is the king of sports books by signing up and placing your first bet today. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. And just a reminder, 21 years of age or older to wager. Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Nevada, Tennessee, and West Virginia only. Please gamble responsibly. And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado and Nevada. And 1-800-GAMBLER. That's 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey and West Virginia. In Tennessee, call or text the red line at 800-889-9789. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call one 800 Nine with it in Indiana. Promotional code not available in Nevada. And up next, we got the Steelers 10-point favorites in this one going up against the Jags. What do you make of this one? Well, if the Steelers use their whole blitz playbook, I don't I know I keep saying Luton sucks and Luton keeps doing okay. I thought he did okay against the Packers, I, I should mention. Like his numbers were really bad, but so was the wind. Uh he he, he still isn't a starting quarterback to me or anything close to it, but he's done better than I thought he would. And uh, he's got some moxie or whatever. So that's great. But if he's, if the Pittsburgh defense is playing, you know, full form, I think we might see some kind of embarrassing footage for Luton, like just getting, you know, blindside hit and looking like an exploding giraffe when it happens. And it'll, it'll be pretty rough if so, but the, the Steelers could look at this team, you know, 10 point underdogs and think instead, like, let's save some of the playbook for the, you know, the AFC and, and that would be reasonable. So, uh, you know, 10 points might be asking a lot of the Steelers just because 
you know, if they they'd have to throw the ball all game, and wouldn't it be a little weird if they threw the ball all game? Um, I don't know. It's, it seems like James Conner, I think, is probably okay, but he couldn't get anything going last week. And granted, they didn't come out on him right now. They didn't give him much volume, but it just doesn't really feel like it's happening. And they've clearly changed some of the offense to suit Roethlisberger, where I think some of the usage, especially the usage two years ago in the passing game that went to Connor at the time has now been channeled into these kind of uh, like it's been given to like Chase Claypool, I think. And obviously it's not the same plays. It's not these backfield screens, but it's just the Steelers are running, I think, a lot of four wide this year when they used to run you know, three wide, one tight end or two tight end, two receiver on plays that turned into targets for James Conner. I think they're going to uh, chase Claypool and to a lesser extent, Eric Ebron now. And it's like Anthony McFarland was getting worked in a little bit before he got sick last week. Benny Snell can do some stuff. Jalen Samuels can do some stuff. So it's, it's hard to be excited about Conner the way I should be. If he's a 10 point favorite against a bad defense, um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can't make a call on that one because it it does it does look like a really good setup, and maybe I'm just despairing over you know a missed opportunity like last week too much. Like maybe he's due for a bounce back. But it seems like the Steelers to me are doing something kind of similar to what the the Colts are doing with Philip Rivers, where it's like everything they do is to justify the quarterback, and they know Roethlisberger can't throw downfield, so they are hell bent somewhat understandably on making a horizontally wide field every play because they can't make it vertically long. So they're creating the space left to right instead. And, you know, you got to get a fifth receiver out there sometimes to do that. And uh, so, yeah, it's even if, even if the Steelers cover the spread and then some, it's hard to get my hopes up for a vintage James Conner, like ever again, really. Yeah. That, um, yeah. He's one, he's one of like the biggest question marks for fantasy that this week, because, you know, all, all the numbers would, would point to, you know, him just crushing it um, in this spot against the Jags, but we've had plenty of opportunities like that before the, this season. And it, it hasn't really come to fruition too much when it comes to Connor. So I think you have a, a good, interesting parallel as far as Steelers justifying the, the quarterback situation right now and, and trying to tailor it as much as they can to, um, to fit Roethlisberger's strengths as they currently set up. And, and with that, um, a lot of just short intermediate passes, it's kind of like the bread and butter of this offense. As far as the Jags are concerned in this one, I mean, the, it's one thing to to kind of hang around with, with the Packers. And I know there was at least, what, one special teams touchdown that, that kind of helped the, the Jaguars stick around on Sunday. This time going up against the Steelers defense, I think that you know we, we could see a very very low uh, score scoring outcome for the uh, Jaguars offense. Yeah, I don't like Luton against this defense. I don't think he has the quick release ability. I don't think he has a quick game to counter what, what's coming for him. If you're trying to do that play action, you know, deep post fly route stuff over and over against the Steelers, one of those times you're just not going to block. TJ Watt or somebody and it's it's just going to go really badly. So I think the the Jags uh I don't know. It's like I like James Robinson. I wouldn't put it past him running tough in this game. I just don't know whether it would matter. Like I that you can imagine this game being like 17 nothing at halftime and if the Jags have to throw the ball in the second half eventually Luton will just fall apart, I think. Yeah, that that would yeah that that'll be a tough scenario. I, I think pretty much any si- situation that you put it up against, uh, I just don't really see Luton succeeding here. So that that's just going to be tough sledding for basically all these Jaguars. And and you know this is among 
uh, one of the tougher spots that, that um, James Robinson will face this year. I don't know if you have better options on your bench. If you do, then you, you, you know, you're probably doing very, very well in, in your league right now. But, um, you know, I think that Robinson still profiles as an, as probably a, like a middle range RB two this week, um, just because of the volume that, that he's going to get. So like him, all right, but otherwise nothing really to look at as far as the Jags go, as far as I'm concerned. Let's move on over. We got the Bengals going up against the football team. Number one versus number two picks from a year ago. Burrow versus Chase Young. What do you got going on here? I don't know. This is a tough one. Uh, it looks like Mixon is out again, so it'll be Geo, and I guess to a lesser extent, Samaje P. Ryan revenge game. So uh, that's that's. I guess my interest in this game, but on the other side, on the the other parts of the Bengals offense, some, some people are starting to notice more. I don't know how much it's being properly appreciated yet though. T Higgins is not just the best receiver on the Bengals. Well, yeah, actually I, I, I know Tyler Boyd is really good, but T Higgins is already, I think pushing for kind of like top 20 ish sort of NFL receiver, which is at once pretty surprising for me. Like I didn't, I didn't see him making this much ground in such a crowded wide receiver rotation, but you know, Ross is out. Auden Tate really just isn't much. I know I've seen people saying like they should replace AJ green with Auden Tate. That's just kind of like replacing Auden Tate with Auden Tate. I don't know. It's it's like, it's <laughs> just not really a change. Like go ahead. Who cares? It's not going to change anything. This is a T Higgins show. It's a Tyler Boyd show. That's not changing. And as much as Kendall Fuller has done really well with the, with Washington and Ronald Darby's having a kind of like a bounce back year, neither of those guys is suited to covering Higgins really at all. And I don't know if they're, they're not really suited to cover AJ green either or Auden Tate, but they definitely can't cover Higgins in my opinion. And Tyler Boyd should be good in the slot. So if, if Higgins is an advantage and if Boyd is an advantage, then that's kind of interesting for Burrow even though that Washington pass rush could be a big problem. And that's the part that makes me confused with this matchup. Like I I don't really know how to, how to plan, uh, how to game that one out because I think Burrow can make the throws. I think those receivers can create the throwing lanes for him, but I just, you know, two weeks doesn't make me forget how bad that Cincinnati offensive line has been this year. And if they've had two better games, then that just makes me all that much more inclined to think it's going to fall apart again. And if they're going to play this front four, I am pretty worried about Joe Burrow uh, getting hit a lot of times by, you know, three times each uh, from young Montez sweat, Darren Payne, uh, John, Jonathan Allen. So there's a, those four guys can all just, destroy the offensive linemen in front of them and they could all do it at the same time there's there's ways for it to go very badly for burrow but those receivers will be open and it's i don't know which happens first you know right that that is like the the key to this game because we've seen washington take over games the times that they've won this year or been competitive it's been in part um because of that pass rush that they have i mean the the week one against the eagles is is the most obvious um example of that but yeah it, it it goes to show that this is a pass rush that that can really tilt a game and the Bengals are particularly vulnerable to those type of setups. So even if they have been playing better, like you said recently, it feels a little bit false and it feels like it's due for some, for some pretty serious regression uh, come Sunday. 
I think that the, what will smooth it over and make the the fantasy values work for guys like like Higgins and Boyd and all of that is just like the, I think the Bengals passing volume, especially with no Mixon, is going to be high enough to to satisfy um, at least Higgins and Boyd um, for your fantasy purposes. But yeah. um, I, I don't I don't necessarily see this being like a, a bust out spot because, like you said, that the pass rush and like the the secondary has actually been decent, I guess, for Washington too. Yeah, their secondary is fine. I just think um, like. Can- 511 185 kind of corner and Darby he's bigger uh, but he's still more of a he's sub six foot sub 195 that kind of stuff and T Higgins is just huge he he moves really well but he's huge and uh, in the slot it should be I think Tyler Boyd against Jimmy Moreland who you know he's James Madison corner two years ago or something like he can't cover Tyler Boyd so I think I'm optimistic about Boyd, especially since he has the quicker routes. But I, I think Higgins will get uh, he'll even if he needs to box out Fuller or Darby or somebody. I, I think he'll do it. I think he's just he's just a star receiver, and he'll he'll keep doing stuff like that. Absolutely. And then on the Washington side of things, you know, I don't know. I, I what can we take so from? Much. <laughs> well, he threw it so much last week, though. That, I mean, but so yeah, much Terry's great. Terry cannot be stopped. Uh, Antonio Gibson is good, but he can be stopped by Ron Rivera. So that's a problem. But the setup is great for Gibson if they just decide to start giving their best players the ball. If you if you throw 15 targets to J.D. McKissick, and I'm, I'm not even blaming J.D. McKissick for that, and I'm, I'm slightly blaming the quarterback. I think even if you have a busted leg, you should know better than throwing 15 times to J.D. McKissick in one game. What, like 40 yards or something? It was obscene, man. It was the dumbest, the single dumbest usage I've ever seen in an NFL game. And it's the kind of thing that tells, it's like just proof. Ron Rivera has no clue what he's doing. He is a foolish person. You can't let that happen. 15 targets, you just end the game. Like they, they, the, the, the refs should have called a mercy rule at the 12th target to J.D. McKissick or something like that. They should be like, sorry, you threw it 12 times to J.D. McKissick in one game. So, you know, we have to keep this. It's unethical to let this game continue. But... <laughs> Yeah, that's ridiculous. If you're doing that, just just quit. You can't win if you give 15 targets to J.D. McKissick. And it's not J.D. McKissick's fault. The coach shouldn't let it happen, you know. Um, but if you put Antonio Gibson out there for uh, a bunch of those 15 targets, that could be the margin that determines them winning the previous week or something. Like, it's it's crazy the ways that, they, that they'll just choose to do the wrong thing the right way, you know. That's what Ron Rivera is all about. It's like doing better than J.D. McK- if you're Antonio Gibson, doing ba- better than J.D. McKissick – isn't enough. You need to you need to fail the right way, like J.D. McKissick, instead of winning the wrong way, uh, like Gibson might. And that's just who Ron Rivera is. And if he sticks with it, uh, I, I don't exactly think the Bengals are good, but I don't think they're actively sabotaging themselves either. You know, so I don't think Washington's a good enough team to get away with sabotaging themselves that much. No, they are definitely not. So, so that definitely, you know, it, it, it helps explain why this one is just a, a one and a half point. Uh, favorite on the side of the football team as the home side in this one. So the the definite chance of the Bengals coming in here and and escaping with the victory. Let's go over to the Dolphins going up against the Broncos. I think from a side perspective, this is one of my favorite plays of the week. Uh, I do. I know that betting against the Broncos in Denver uh, can be a little bit tricky, and you know, I, I imagine this is probably one of Tua's first, if or like only cold weather games. I don't know what the weather looks like for in Denver on Sunday exactly, but 
it'll be tough, at least compared to those SEC conditions or, or the Miami conditions, of course. But even still, I love the way that this Dolphins team is playing right now. And I cannot say the same about this Broncos team that also has a, you know, a busted up quarterback situation. Yeah, the the Broncos are weird. Locke never was very good. And I, I know it's, you know, he... He's still a young quarterback, and I it's unfair to expect a guy like him to just be consistent and, and good on the road, even if it's a bad defense, which certainly Las Vegas is. A game like last week is kind of within the reasonable range of expectations for him, but that's only just to kind of re-acknowledge that he's probably not very good, you know, and uh, adding the ribs thing and sorry, who is it? Are they going to Driscoll or are they back to uh, what's his name? <laughs> it, it might be, it might be ripping season ripping again. again. Okay. Well, that wouldn't be good. So uh, yeah, ripping against this Miami defense, I think would be a total disaster, like really digging a deep pit kind of thing. So I, I'm kind of creeped out that 76% of the bets apparently are on the Dolphins right now. Sure. And uh, the line has changed uh, over. Uh, sorry, the, the spread has changed four and a half points. So that's that's one of those things where, you know how that, that feeling that we have when we sometimes look at a spread and it looks wrong to us and we think like, you fools. Uh, we should be having like a collective kind of moment where we pause and reflect. And it's like, wait, we're all the dumb guys usually. And we all agree on this. But it's also a different thing, you know, three and a half points versus, uh, you know, plus three and a half versus minus one. Very different question. Uh, but, yeah, I'd, I think even if two is bad, even if Salvin Ahmed or whoever's running the ball can't really get anything going in Denver, that Miami defense should be fine. And that Miami defense, especially if it's like even if it is Locke. I don't think he can read those coverages, but if it's ripping, he can't read those coverages and he can't throw it half as fast as, as Locke can. So uh, if it, especially if it's ripping out there. Yeah, I, I just, you know, bourbon bowl, six to nothing victory kind of thing. <laughs> hey, six to no, nothing victory gets us the spread cover, though. So, right. We'll that's just that's all. That's the reason I said six instead of three. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So th- this one sets up to be. uh Maybe not the most watchable game in the, in the afternoon window. We're, we're kind of we're put up with a pretty tough afternoon slate of games here, Mario, actually. So let's get on to this next one. Yeah. Jets Chargers. Chargers I'm not eight on, and a half point favorites. I'm not on this Kalen Bellage resurgence sort of theory. I, I think he's a, a big, fast guy who probably works hard and, and does the right things as like a professional football player. And I think when you give him a Justin Herbert offense in some of the settings over the last couple of weeks, creating some space for him to run. Yeah. Being a big fast guy who tries to do his job. Well, he can probably take advantage of a few of those. I've always thought though, he can't survive a longer sample because he, he just doesn't have the instincts to play and his instincts undermine him to the point that his physical tools become less effective and, and matter less. So I'm, I'm still fading Kalen Balaj as a player, but for the setup here, you know, the jets, even if they play inspired on defense, they will eventually break on defense in this game. And if Kalen Balaj is running against a bunch of, you know, gassed quitters, then I, I think he will have an advantage over them. So it looks like it should be a good setup for him. I just think, He's a sell high if he does have another good game here. Uh, otherwise, Herbert gets back on track. He'll have a big game uh, as long as they want him to anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, as long as as this one isn't like a 
you know, 30 point lead for, for the chargers. Yeah. And, and if it is, you know, Herbert probably has a lot to do with that. So, you know, uh, I'm with you there. Balazs, you know, just, he's taking advantage of his opportunity. You can't take that away from him over the last couple of weeks, but at the same time, not exactly expecting it to last. I will say it probably could last again this week going up against the jets and, you know, gets yeah. a little bit of in season revenge. That's On Adam nice. Gase. Yeah. Yeah. Two times. So, or wait, was he there for one of the Gase years, or was he just there when Flores got there? I can't remember. Um, but yeah, he's he's got the perfect setup, and he would have you know. no, he definitely would have been with with Gase, right? Because okay. so yeah, um, as much, think of how much we hate Gase, and then imagine how much reason he has to hate him. <laughs> All of it. So yeah, th- this could this could be blood and guts central as far as that's concerned. Um, anything else to add on as far as the, these Chargers uh, pass catchers go? Well, you never want to fade Keenan, or you never want to like bet against Keenan Allen too much. But I do think this is a nice spot for Guyton and especially Mike Williams to get some really good matchups outside because Brian Poole is a good slot corner, and yes, Keenan Allen, I would choose to win in that matchup. But will it be so much easier to throw to Williams that that doesn't matter? Like, will it just be uh, Keenan's going to win on uh, Poole over here, but? Nobody's covering Mike, so I'm just going to throw to him. Like that's that's kind of the thing that I'm imagining here is is Mike Williams being wide open and Guyton too. I mean, those outside corners for the Jets are terrible and they can't run. Guyton can run, so if if they if they're too slow, he he will get away from them eventually. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a little bit of Guyton actually in some DFS last week, and I, I would definitely be fine to go back to the well with it with a matchup going up against this the Jets. Way yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think there's really much to mention on the Jets side of this, though. No. Um, so we, so uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll continue <laughs> on. Uh, we got Packers Colts Sunday afternoon. Uh, Packer or I'm sorry, Indianapolis favored by one and a half points. Uh, they are the home side in this one. I was talking to Liz about this game yesterday, and you know, for me, my my, my knee jerk reaction is. You know, anytime that Indianapolis is going up against a, a competent to good team, my, my initial gut instinct is to go against Indianapolis because I'm just that far out on, on Phillip Rivers. Yeah. But, but there are some flaws that uh, to this Packers team that theoretically that Indianapolis could, you know, uh, exploit at least enough to, to make this one an ugly game, the, the kind of game that, that they like to get into where, where they end up coming out on, on top when it comes to Indianapolis. So uh, what are your thoughts on this matchup? It's a little weird going to Indianapolis. I don't I don't have in my head uh, a good memory reel of Aaron Rodgers in, in domes doing well, but I think he should be fine. The, the Colts might be without two starters in the secondary, one slot corner, Kenny Moore, who uh, he, he might play. I don't know, but he's got a rib thing. He's he's not just a slot corner. He's kind of like their their uh, one of their blitzers too. They use him a lot, like kind of Mike Hilton has been used with with the uh, Steelers this year. So if he's out, that would be significant. It also looks like Kerry Willis, their safety. I think he's kind of like a strong safety type, but uh, he, if he's out, that that hurts them a little bit more in any case. So I, I try to wonder, you know, Devonte Adams. He's, I think, the kind of receiver who's really good against all kinds of defenses. So sometimes you got to think a little bit about how a guy will do against this Colts coverage because it's not quite man to man. They do a bunch of 
disguised coverages and just zones that fit together a certain way and like the players execute it well but it's not quite analogous to like getting open exactly it's more like you just have to guess where they're not going and go there kind of thing and Adams seems pretty good at that he does well against the Bears and the Bears I think kind of use some of those uh, zone type principles to more than other teams so Adams is a guy who I don't think it really matters whether it's zone or man coverage and if he's going that's a big part of the puzzle right there because we don't have reason to think Philip Rivers can match Aaron Rodgers if Aaron Rodgers gets his number one receiver going at, at a customary rate. And then with Alan Lazard back, I don't think he exactly matches up great with Xavier Rhodes, especially, and, and to a lesser extent, even Rock Yassin isn't a great matchup. But I think he's overall a pretty good player. And Matt LaFleur, he hasn't gotten much credit for this. And I, I have other like unrelated criticisms of Matt LaFleur, but I can grant him this much. Like He's calling designed plays about as well as anyone in the league. Like He's doing a lot of Sean McVay level kind of just uniquely good ideas because you, you get these plays over and over in these Packer games where it's like they need a big play. And you know they can only really get the ball to Devontae Adams or you know Aaron Jones – but Matt LaFleur keeps calling these plays that get that guy open. It's like the, the, these plays we've never seen before where it all sets up. So, like, you know it's going to Adams, but you just can't really stop it for some reason because he he layers all the routes to, to get Adams free. And you see him do it with Aaron Jones. You see him do it with uh, time to time even, like, Tanyan and uh, Jamal Williams too. So I think if, if LaFleur is as sharp play-calling-wise as he usually is, then he has some good ideas on how to deal with, with the Colts' Uh, kind of novel schemes on defense and um yeah if, if so then they should like maybe Aaron Jones can't run the ball a ton like the 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 Colts I would guess are easier more easily attacked through the air uh but Aaron Jones can contribute a lot toward that end and as long as Rodgers is functional I think that's enough because Rivers basically can't be functional Rivers can only win if the opposing quarterback is is roughly as bad as he is or so um or <laughs> so I'm reducing it to anyway. So I like the Packers enough. Uh, on the other side, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, a, a lot of people are understandably out on Jonathan Taylor. And I think it's you know certainly frustrating. And I was I had too high of expectations for him this year. I still think not that this matters to fantasy investors, but I still think it's pretty clearly a case of just coaching malpractice. I think it's a case of Frank Reich and Tom Rathman just on a personal level really liked first Marlon Mack, but also uh, Naheem Hines and to a lesser extent, Jordan Wilkins. And whereas you have a case like Clyde Edward Tolaire in Kansas city, where Andy Reed decided we are going to get this guy ready. We're going to make sure sh- maybe he's not ready right now, but that's our job to fix that. Frank Reich are doing Frank Reich is doing something more like the Matt Patricia, Deandre Swift thing where he's kind of saying like, you got to show me that you've earned it kind of thing instead of being kind of like grown up enough and, and realistic enough to look at it and say, like, wow, you're easily our most talented running back. We should probably make it a, a point of our jobs to make you the best you can be because you can be better than these other guys if we put that kind of time into you. But they're not putting that kind of time into him. They're giving these practice reps to Naheem Hines and Jordan Wilkins. And then in the games, they're more they're they're their main objective is to make Philip Rivers happen. They want to justify Philip Rivers in that signing. So it's not as important to them to make Jonathan Taylor the best player he can be as as much as it is the case for Philip Rivers. And you're seeing it play out that way. Like the resources are are being distributed according to that objective rather than the one of maximizing Taylor. And they're getting just what they basically asked for as a result. But even with everything being so dumb, 
And even with, uh, you know, Taylor, basically, I, I think Taylor will be good. For, I should say clearly, like I think looking at some of his Wisconsin tape, his vision is good. What he's what he needs to do is is relearn like a new game, basically, because Wisconsin's offensive line was really dominant and he played with a fullback a lot, but he saw the field really well. And now I think he needs to just learn what it looks like to be without an offensive line advantage, basically. And he doesn't like, he hasn't learned the rhythm yet. Don't um, you feel like that was like part of like part of the thing that made him like all the more appealing coming into this year? I mean, do you think that, you know, I tweeted this out. Uh, maybe during last week's game against the Titans, but like, has there been one unit that has been more over or that was more overrated during draft season that wasn't an actual fantasy player than Indianapolis's offensive line? Because I mean, yeah, I uh, everyone was it's so worse. Yeah, yeah, it got worse. Costanzo was hurt earlier. I think Braden Smith or whatever might have gone into the year a bit hurt. Um, but Philip Rivers being there has made it worse too. Well, it because it shrinks I think, everything. You know, yeah, the, the defense the kit doesn't respect the downfield pass whatsoever. Right. So when I was talking about how the Colts are trying to justify Philip Rivers rather than Jonathan Taylor and us seeing that play out in the results, I'm especially talking about the usage of Naheem Hines. And Naheem Hines last week, I know some people were saying like, "Oh, he's just running better. He's got the hotter hand." It's like. No, he does not. He, he, he's not. This is a guy who had a 3.8 yards per carry average after two full years in the NFL. He's never been good as a pass catcher. Naheem Hines can specifically not run at all. That's the one thing we know he can't do. He can't see the field. He can't break tackles. He can't see the field. He can run and eat up space if it's there on like a draw play. And he gets generally lighter looks than Taylor because the defense correctly assumes that there's a, a pass play coming. So he gets different looks. He doesn't run better. And getting different looks is something that the, the offensive, the, the people calling the plays are supposed to manage and create, you know, f- dictate opening for Taylor by making the defense acknowledge these other threats. And they can't really do that because Phillip Rivers is the quarterback. So Hines gets these better looks. And the other part of it is just kind of like small sample uh, lack of attention span. It's like what, Naheem Hines having two carries for 22 yards is not more meaningful than, than Taylor having, uh, you know, leading the team and rushing up to that point in the year. You know, it's like two carries is nothing. It doesn't matter. You have to remember who these players are over the course of their careers. Um, But what was going on specifically in that Titans game was that the Colts were sticking with Naheem Hines because the Titans would not put a defensive back on the field when Hines would go into the huddle. So Hines is a former receiver and Rivers is basically a bad quarterback to the point that he needs a receiver lined up against a linebacker to get a guy open. So that's why they put him out there because the, the Titans kept leaving Jayon Brown in man-to-man coverage against him. And to make Rivers justified, they needed to get a receiver against a linebacker because he would otherwise fail. So that was the choice as far as they saw it. And when it was framed that way, it was no trouble at all for them to put Taylor in away for good in that game because they, they wanted t- Rivers to happen and, and Hines against a linebacker was a way to do it. But the Packers are more than most teams willing to put five defensive backs on the field. So if they try to put Hines out there and instead of Jayon Brown, he's running against Will Redman, we'll see how well that works. Okay. All right. That that was, you know, you hit all the key points there as far as, as this backfield usage is concerned for, for Indianapolis. One thing I did want to point out, and, and again, like I, I know that I've been fairly negative towards this Indianapolis offense throughout the course of the year, but I think there might be one bright spot and it's Michael Pittman. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was kind of it's hard for me to tell who he is exactly. And some of those plays they used him on last week, I don't think he's actually well suited toward. But uh, he's he's a good athlete, and he was 
good in college. So um, it's hard for me to get my hopes up on like week to week consistency with with Rivers being the quarterback. Certainly the Titans defense is, is about as weak as it gets. So yep. uh, I think he's a much better prospect than yeah Pascal was. And T.Y. Hilton is, of course, kind of getting phased out. So there, there's room for Pittman. I just uh, I don't know what a fair expectation is, especially as long as Rivers is the quarterback. Because I, I think last week was like pretty close to the best case setup, you know, weak defense uh kind kind of uh out of nowhere guy too yes you know. I, once there's some tape on him defenses are going to do different things than they have to this point it, he'll be fine it's just these things sometimes they kind of get or these rookies kind of get into like struggle you know points where they need to make counter adjustments and eventually they re- versus the league but until then it's kind of there might be like ups and downs until then and especially when you have a trash quarterback that can't throw downfield i figure that can't help no it, de- it definitely can't so um you know, and that that jives with the, with the idea that maybe they're they're not using him the, the best or the most optimal way because he does strike me more as like a downfield outside yeah, the numbers line. type of guy yeah. and that's not really uh, really any facet of this indianapolis offense I guess one thing I will say is that he's had seven or more targets in each of the last two games. So, hmm. um, that you know, it wasn't just the Tennessee game. He did yeah. have seven seven targets against Baltimore. So I think we could at least think that there is a target floor there that we maybe didn't previously. I, I agree with you where he's not going to catch seven out of his eight targets for over 100 yards every single week. But I, it wouldn't shock me if, you know, he, he does see enough volume to, to maybe make it worth uh, taking a look at him in, in DFS or if you're yeah, really, yeah. really hurting in a deep league for, for streaming purposes. Yeah, I, I don't know if you would see Alexander even if Alexander is back. But if Alexander is out, then he's then Pittman's running against a bad corner pretty much all game. Oof. All right. So that that's another thing to keep in mind heading into Sunday. Let's go on over to the Cowboys going up against the Vikings. Mario, fun little quiz here. Who leads the league in team yards per play? Uh, Dalvin Cook? Oh, no, it's oh. Justin Jefferson. As, as a team, the Minnesota Vikings lead the entire NFL in yards per play. Oh, I misunderstood. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um it's it's still basically because of Dalvin Cook, I assume, and yeah, Justin yeah. Jefferson. I mean, yeah, yeah, that 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 answer that should have just counted basically, and uh, they're doing that despite having, or it, it's not really a despite thing, but it, it is also worth noting that they're running the second least or second fewest uh, plays per game as well for, uh, for the Vikings. So they're well, low volume, high efficiency. I guess it makes kind of sense for them since they have no depth, but yeah, that's always a bummer when you have to do the the no volume offense. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of just like a bad team thing to do, but in this setting, yeah, why how, how, the narrow tree is is kind of a convenient thing in a setup like this because Dallas can't pose any resistance, and yeah, Dalvin Cook. I, I guess it's like the question of how much damage Thielen and Jefferson do, kind of is dependent on like does does Dalvin go over two hundred yards in this because. Running the fewest plays, it's like they don't, they're not specifically trying to get Jefferson and Thielen going. It's more like when they have to. And uh, they always start with Dalvin Cook. And if they need more, then the, the receivers will eventually get going. But will they need to do more against Dallas? It's, I'm open to the, to the possibility of a close game here. I, I'm not particularly attached to it, though, because I, 
as much as I think the, the Vikings defense is not particularly good and I don't think their corners are good at all. Um, I don't, do we know, is it going to be Dalton? Who's that quarterback in this one? I saw that it they seems like, like it's trending that way. Okay. Um, well, I don't know. He looked really bad <laughs> against the Cardinals. So I don't know if I care He's off the COVID list as, as of Wednesday. Wow. Um, I mean, that's good. Uh, I just don't know if it, the receivers should be open, I guess. I, I mean, if he, it's just, I don't know why it would be a better situation than the Cardinals game, you know, like it, that was a game where the receivers all had the advantage too. Uh, so I don't know, man, I guess, I guess there's no reason that, or if you have to go with one of those Dallas receivers, I guess don't worry about it, but I'm not, I'm not trying to get my hopes up for like a, a strong finish for the Dallas offense or even, or anything like that, even against kind of a weaker Minnesota pass defense. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, we see where bad quarterbacks can, can sink absolutely everything and not be able to take advantage. Like, like you were saying, the Vikings, they don't have a particularly strong defense and it's definitely not deep at all, but they were still able to limit the, the bears offense and the bears offense is one of the worst in the league. And I think that you could also argue that the Dakless Cowboys offense is also among the worst in the league. So it, the Vikings have their flaws. I just don't think that Dallas has enough fire, like firepower to make them pay for it at all. Right. Uh, so I make, I think it makes a lot of sense to still get some exposure to maybe Kirk cousins, but at least Jefferson and Thielen and like your tournament DFS lineups, because if, if even like Cincinnati, Andy Dalton steps onto that field, then, then Dallas should be able to make it competitive. But I don't think Zeke runs for much. As much as the Vikings defense is worse, Eric Kendricks is still Eric Kendricks. And he's in himself pretty much like a shutdown threat for whoever the running back is. And for running back routes or tight end routes, he's, he's a shutdown threat there too. So, But if Dalton plays like a vaguely dignified quarterback, you know the, the slot corner cannot cover CeeDee Lamb. The outside corners cannot cover Amari Cooper, and they can't even cover Michael Gallup. So those three guys are all open. It's up to Dalton to just not miss the barn every single time. Hopefully he can be on target and hit the broadside of the barn. Let's go over to the night games. Uh, let's get into Chiefs versus Raiders. The Raiders obviously had one of the more season going into Kansas City and beating the Chiefs earlier on. I think there were like two touchdown dogs in that yeah. one, uh, getting a little bit more respect here, but still giving or getting eight points at home against the Chiefs. Chiefs coming off the bye, of course. What do we got here? Well, the Raiders defense apparently might be out with COVID concerns, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, I guess they were going to be bad either way, but more, or likely bad either way. I suppose that situation can't help anything. So, yeah, Sammy Watkins is back. I don't know if it yeah, really matters. Yeah, that whole defensive matter. line, right? Oh my goodness. Well, it's like it's like eight of eleven or nine of eleven players they they have to send home until uh, Sunday or something. I don't know. Uh, it's it's insane. But it it uh you know it's it's like Mahomes was probably going to light them up either way. Maybe it doesn't change a whole lot. Can't help anything for the Raiders. Uh, Sammy Watkins coming back. Basically, you're subtracting Demarcus Robinson and replacing him with Sammy Watkins. Watkins might not be great, but he's like five times as good as Demarcus Robinson. So I think, you know, Mahomes rolls here. The question is, can Carr strike back? And Carr has shown a new willingness to throw downfield, at, at least when Ruggs is on the field. 
this year, and he really actually made his first uh, he, he made his first showing this this new like uh, renovated version of Derek Carr actually debuted in that previous Chiefs game. So right. we know the personnel can be exploited if Carr plays that way, and if those two sides call plays like they did. I, I just figure Steve Spagnuolo will have some kind of adjustment. He'll uh, not necessarily. You know that that's not just to say he'll he'll win this time. Like Carr and, and the Raiders might anticipate these adjust, adjustments or just do something different on their part, and maybe those adjustments on and Spagnuolo's part will go to waste. But um, I, I in the meantime, I got to give Carr credit. Like he's definitely not playing coward ball anymore. So that that might have been a big part of why he was limited in the past. Like his own you know mind, his own unwillingness. To, to just step outside and he's, he's doing it now. And, and I think they've made meaningful improvement as a result of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't believe the the 180 that, that Carr has basically taken this year because, you know, talking about Derek Carr in any sort of like fantasy football context, the last couple of years, it's like, Oh, gross. Like, are, Oh, you ended up with Carr on your team. Like, you know, how badly did you screw up your draft? You know what? What? What do you think? Somebody auto picked. Yeah, see that kind of crap. And, and yeah, this year, you know, they, they've got they've got him surrounded with some pretty interesting pieces, of course, and and it's it's clicking. I mean, it, again, he's above average as far as that average depth of, of target is concerned, and and that's like crazy compared to you know him who, who usually brings up the rear. I mean, he's checking and- in at eight point nine on the A dot right now. And at least that in that last Chiefs game, he wasn't just throwing it that far. He was making on-target passes too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> like at, at this point, like I was always a Derek Carr critic, including up until that game. But it's like now he's not Derek Carr anymore to me. Like he's he's like some other kind of quarterback, and maybe that quarterback will turn out to be disappointing in some other ways. But my primary complaints about him just don't exist anymore. And that it's very weird. I don't know what to say about him critically at this point. <laughs> oh man. What, what do you, I mean, in, in a year it's with a so coach. much other craziness, now we, now we got Derek Carr getting respect on his name. Wild stuff. I, I do think that overall you're, uh, the idea that the chiefs are just have so much of an, uh, firepower advantage over what, what the Raiders might be rolling out on defense that, anything that the Raiders do on offense just simply isn't going to matter. If you get into a name your score game against the chiefs, you're going to lose that pretty much every single time. So uh, I'm with you on the, on the chiefs this week, but, but here's hoping that the Raiders can keep this one interesting on Sunday night. And then let's round things out. We got Rams bucks Monday night, the main event of the week, arguably Rams checking in as four point underdogs going across the country to face off against the bucks, the bucks, you know, kind of, kind of got right once again last week. Just what they needed. Every time that they've lost this year, I believe that they've come back with a pretty resounding um, answer. The following week, the Rams are tough, though. The Rams, the Rams have really kind of uh, changed my opinion of them that this week. I, I thought that we'd see more of more of the 2019 form, but they look more 2018 than, than 2019 um, this season. So this is a, this is a really tough matchup uh, for the Bucks. Yeah, it is, and. I would kind of give the personnel advantage to the Tampa Bay defense against the Rams offense, but even against, I, I consider Todd Bowles like a pretty great defensive coordinator, but even against a great defensive coordinator with great defensive personnel, it's not going to play one-to-one. Uh, like the equation isn't just going to be like personnel versus personnel. Like the McVay variable will make 
the the Tampa Bay corners worse than what they basically are. And if Goff can just keep from falling apart, like that's not a guarantee. I mean, uh, as much as those corners, I think I don't. I, f- I feel like there are basically no corners who are completely safe from McVay if he really has enough time to plan and, and scheme on something. But uh, Sheck, I always keep calling. I keep mixing him up with this Calhoun guy on the Patriots a couple of years ago. But it's Sheck Barrett, not Calhoun. And of course, Jason Pierre-Paul quietly having a, a pretty big year opposite him. It's like those guys can really rush the passer. And like, that was something that previously was a question about the Tampa Bay defense. Like, yeah, they got these great corners and run defense, but they don't have a pass rush this year. Pierre-Paul and Barrett are both going off. Uh, the corners, you know, maybe, maybe McVay tangles them up, but Goff can get rattled and, and those guys, those edge guys can get to him. So it's a little dangerous for Goff or it's a lot dangerous for Goff. It's just also kind of dangerous for the Buccaneers defense. And I don't know which way the ball breaks on that one. The interesting thing is I don't know what to expect of the Rams running game, especially, but I'm kind of pessimistic about it. Maybe, maybe this is yeah. irrational on my part, but I can't get it out of my head. Like even if Vita Vea isn't out there, I'm like, but the, the Buccaneers run defense is so tough. And it, part of that is too, is like, I just am kind of skeptical of the Rams running game in general. Like I don't, I don't consider it any better than average. So if the running game can't go and if Goff isn't getting these like free shots at, at open receivers. I can imagine Goff actually having a pretty rough game. So I understand the spread. The only thing is when I think about the Tampa Bay offense against the Rams defense, I'm not convinced that they do any better than the Rams offense against the Tampa defense, even in kind of like the, the, the bleaker scenarios for the Rams offense, because Tom Brady is, he's putting up big numbers, of course, but he has so much help around him and he still has a decent number of ugly plays and when I look at this matchup, you know, I mean, Mike Evans is probably better at uh, the refined aspects of wide receiver play than DK Metcalf. Like Mike Evans is probably a wiser receiver. So sure. I don't want to just assume Evans loses to Jalen Ramsey just because DK Metcalf more or less did. But uh, it's a pretty big risk. I mean, Jalen Ramsey, he, he's in, you know, he's insane and he's, he's kind of like dislikable in certain ways and, and I, you know he's probably a hothead and whatever else but it's pretty difficult to argue with results like last week and if you know Evans might not be a hundred percent either so if Evans is in any case kind of neutralized or shut down then Tom Brady is left with of course of course Antonio Brown which is uh, just an ongoing ridiculous story of course but I don't like Antonio Brown getting open against Darius Williams I don't think he can I, I think Darius mm. Williams has the advantage there Chris Godwin, I think, could have a really big game here. If so, if there's a funnel away from Evans and, and a little Brown can't really uh, pick up the slack that might result from Evans, I think it all goes toward Godwin, and I think he's up for it. Like Godwin is still insanely good. People are kind of bored with him or whatever, but it's outrageous how effective <laughs> that guy is, and uh, he could have a really big game here, I think. Yes, I like that call and the way you drew it up where, you know, you- you got tough corners on the outside for for the for the Rams. Maybe that funnels things a little bit more towards the slot. Could that also funnel things a bit towards Gronk, who looked a little bit yeah. more like himself last week? Yeah, and uh, I don't know what to make of Ronald Jones's huge game. I'm shocked that Bruce Arians let him go back out there, but uh, it's a good thing he did <laughs> because it's it's more like the Bruce Arians. The 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 more the more uh, typical Bruce Arians scenario is Ronald Jones fumbles on that first drive or whatever doesn't play again and they lose because Leonard Fournette had like 70 yards on 16 carries instead of, uh, you know, 190 or whatever Jones ended up with. But Mm -hmm. that was kind of like, 
a little bit like USC Ronald Jones. And if he's USC Ronald Jones, then that's a pretty good NFL running back and maybe even more than pretty good. So it's, it's, it's been kind of funny and fun, like amusing to watch Ronald Jones, like shake off the shackles of Bruce Arians, uh, even as Arians continually tries to undermine him, uh, you know, in, in every sense. Uh, but it looks like it finally happened. I, I don't know how they put that one back in the bottle, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you there. I mean, we've, we've believed in Jones for some time, for me, my, my faith wavered after last season, but I mean, he, you know, talent it wavers wise, on a, we have wavers on like an hourly basis. It's just, it's insane. <laughs> it really does. I, I think yeah, it's the, finally, we're finally free now. Yes. The, yeah. The Arians effect, it might finally be, be gone. And yeah, just the, the constant doghouse uh, type of oversight going on there. Maybe, maybe that will go out the window and they can just kind of let Ronald Jones be Ronald Jones. And that, that is, you know, effectively a very good, uh, Running back, do you think that um, with this particular matchup, he could be that X factor, given that, you know, maybe the outside passing game isn't working so well for Tampa Bay? Maybe they, they try to go to the ground a little bit more? It's not or anything, but the slack might exist, you know, and he doesn't need to pick up all of it for the Buccaneers to win necessarily, especially if Goff has a bad game on the other side. But if Goff doesn't have a bad game, then the Buccaneers probably need Jones to have a good game because I I just don't know how much Chris Godwin and Gronkowski and Brown can do uh, if if Evans is more or less shut down by Ramsey. It's just a uh, uh, especially if you factor in stuff like what if what if Brady starts getting a little rattled? What if they hit him a couple times? What if what if his what if his rhythm is off because Donald or uh, somebody gets to him a couple times in the first couple drives? And he starts missing throws that he has been making in his more comfortable moments this year. Like they, as much as the golf scenario is there for collapse, like Brady can do that sort of thing on his end too. So uh, there is, there is going to be pressure on Jones either way, I think. And um, I don't know if he's, if he's running like last week, I guess I I'm optimistic for him. Like he, he seems to be becoming a better version of version of himself all the time. Uh, so you don't want to just, you know, you don't want to assume he'll always look the way he used to. Uh, but it is a big task because the, the Rams have gone more to like a two gap kind of thing this year uh, as opposed to the one gap Wade Phillips defense. And in a game like this, if they think Ramsey can contain Evans, then they are going to put that much more towards stopping Jones because, uh, yeah, I just I don't think Antonio Brown's going to beat up Darius Williams. I, I think Darius Williams has the advantage there. Love that. Love the read on this game. That that really adds some some extra layers uh, of intrigue for when you throw this on. On Monday night, I'm really, really looking forward to this matchup between the Rams and the Bucks. Of course, looking forward to this entire week as a whole. Looking forward to this Thursday night game. So, uh, once again, great stuff, Mario. Um, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the RotoWire NFL podcast for Thursday, November 19th. Make sure you tune in for Friday's show. Andrew Laird, Scott Jenstad, breaking down the DFS side of things. Thanks for listening. happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. 
The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com